the oldest Senate in history. Hi, I'm Philip Lumel. Welcome to No Uncertain Terms, the official podcast of the Turnalance Movement for the week of June 14th, 2021. Your sanctuary from partisan politics. Senator Dianne Feinstein of California is 88. Senator Charles Grassley, 87. Richard Shelby, 87. James Inhofe, 86. Pat Leahy, 81. People are living longer and the average age is rising in many industries as older Americans are staying active longer. That's a good thing. But in politics, this trend is reaching extremes and the reasons aren't limited to better health care or eating more salad. The Washington Post asked U.S. Tournament's Executive Director Nick Tombalides about this phenomenon last week. And we'll do the same today. Hey, Nick. All right, so I have a copy of this article that appeared in the Washington Post on June 2nd, and they're talking about how we have the oldest U.S. Senate in history, and they ask some uncomfortable questions about what that means. Uh, First of all, I'd like to ask the question, how did we get here? Why do we have the oldest Senate in history? And this is a problem, of course, plaguing the House as well. Well, I have always identified this as a problem with the power of incumbency. The fact that not only are senior members of Congress able to avail themselves of so many advantages uh, to stay in power, but there are also advantages that play to the voters' self-interest from time to time in a very unfair way, such as the dilemma. If I vote out my uh, very senior and potentially decrepit member of Congress, Will my district lose access to federal resources? Will we lose out on federal grants? You know, will my member have to step down from a committee and, you know, we start at the back of the line because Washington is based on a a seniority system? Sure. When your entrenched incumbent leaves, then they're replaced by a freshman, necessarily. And so I think we got to this point because federal politics and Congress have basically become a game of chicken uh, between these Mm -hmm. careerist politicians and their own voters who would really like to give all of them the pink slip, but can't because they're so trapped by a broken system. Right. And of course, as we've talked about many times on the podcast, when you have an entrenched incumbency like this that basically automatically win elections, I mean, money's just pouring in, it chases away serious competition, too. There's a long list of reasons why these elder members of the Senate can't lose elections and and, uh, keep running again. Um, And it really has nothing to do with eating wheat germ or jogging. Are you an incumbent? Do you have a pulse? Congratulations, you've been reelected. That's it. I mean, I think one of the classic cases of this is South Carolina Strom Thurmond, right? Because he retired at age 100 from the U.S. Senate. He was in that body for 48 years. And at the end, everybody knew this, that basically his staff did everything for him. I mean, except for maybe just that push the button um, to vote on the Senate floor. He retired and he died a couple months later. Yeah, we, we don't want Congress to look like weekend at Bernie's. They were doing everything for him. They were propping him up. Um, yeah. And and it's not like he's going to be the last one. I mean, Congress is, is shattering records and not in a good way. Um, this is mm-hmm. the oldest Senate in American history. Dianne Feinstein and Chuck Grassley turn 88 this year. Richard wow. Shelby's 87. Yeah. James Inhofe, 86. Yeah. Pat Leahy, 81. Um, mm-hmm. And so people are aware now this is the oldest Senate ever, and it's time for a discussion on whether that's a problem, and if so, what solutions are available. 
Yeah, I have some ideas about solutions. One thing I want to say also that magnifies this problem is that you just mentioned some of the oldest people in the Senate. There, you also mentioned a lot of leadership in the Senate. And that's really the issue because the average age in the Senate, it's not that high, it's like 64. That average is brought down by the fact there's some couple of young members in there. But the main issue is that because it's based on a seniority system, that these older members are the ones that are actually running the show. They run all the committees. And so the problem is is worse than what the average might tell you. It's really told more by these examples that you gave of, of uh, Grassley and Feinstein and, and the others. Yeah, exactly right. It won't matter if from time to time, you know, a young enterprising person with fresh ideas can enter the system. The question we have is, are good ideas blocked by this upper crust of senior career politicians whose power is concentrated on these key committees? And obviously the answer is yes. And that is a major part of why uh, hardly anything constructive can get done in Washington. Right. Now, back to the issue of possible solutions. <laughs> in Canada, they have uh, actually have not a term limit, but a age limit for members of the Senate in Canada. I think it's, it's age 65. Hi, this is Scott Tillman, the National Field Director with U.S. Term Limits. This January, we found out that there's a man who is walking across the country for term limits. Timothy Israel, who goes by Izzy, is walking across the country, and he started down in South Florida and he plans to end up in Northwest Washington State. We contacted Izzy and asked him to walk a couple of states for us. He graciously agreed to help us, and he is bouncing off his original path and doing a couple of side trips through states where the legislatures are considering term limits resolutions. Izzy has walked over 1,500 miles. Currently, he's walking up through North Carolina to bring attention to the term limits resolution that the state legislature is considering. The North Carolina House already passed the resolution, but the North Carolina Senate has not. If you have contacts in North Carolina, please reach out to us on our North Carolina Facebook page, and we will get you the information so that they can encourage their senator to take up the resolution and pass it. Izzy's walk has been featured in dozens of articles and segments in different media publications, including online, print, and broadcast media. Izzy can use our help, and if you're able, he can use your help too. Please go to his website and donate. Go to whereisizzy.com and you'll be directed to Izzy's donation page. All donations will go to him personally and help him to continue his walk for term limits. You can also find his page by going to termlimits.com and selecting Izzy from the drop-down menu of our News tab. It will require citizens standing up and taking action all over our country to pass term limits. Please, if you're able, pitch in to help Izzy today. In this article, you, Nick Tomblees, were talking about the solution, term limits. Roxanne Roberts, the author, she is a super sharp reporter with the Washington Post. She was asking, she's trying to be objective, is age and cognitive decline a problem in Congress? And if it's a problem, what are the solutions? We came up as part of the solutions category. I mean, of course, term limits would be a silver bullet to address the issue of age and cognitive decline in Congress. Sure. But I'm glad this reporter... Uh, Ms. Roberts was willing to tackle this because this is a topic of great importance, but not every reporter has the guts to get into it because they're worried they might offend somebody with the age question. But this was handled so well, and she did represent both sides. And the title of the article was, The Senate is the oldest in American history. Should we do anything about it? 
my favorite quote by you is when uh, she talks about how senior senators' age can become painfully obvious when they're talking about things like the internet and social media and things they actually don't know anything about. And you say, we actually have a joke around here. We don't call them congressional hearings anymore. We call them commercials for term limits. That's perfect. The problem is they're so long and droning that they really become infomercials for term limits after a while. <laughs> yeah, you're right, actually. But, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll take that. I mean, you go on Twitter during a congressional hearing and you see the comments. People always post the uh, the pictures of Statler and Waldorf, those two Muppets, from the, those two old guy Muppets in the balcony who are complaining about everything. And that's what Congress has become. Um, and the lack of term limits is a major factor you know, right before we started recording this, I did a comparison between the U.S. Senate and the Florida State Senate. Now, the U.S. Senate has no term limits. The Florida State Senate is a body that has term limits. And what I found was no one in the Florida Senate is 80, not a single member. There are several members in their 70s, but they're all mainly serving in their final term right now. And you can contrast that with the U.S. Senate where you have five members who are over 80, all of whom are in very critical positions of power, and you have two who are closely approaching 90. I mean, that, that's that got to worry you. And, and the argument isn't that the elderly should have no role in government. It's that they shouldn't be overrepresented, and you shouldn't have a small circle of power brokers calling most of the shots in D.C. And it has to be recognized that life is what it is, and... Most people are not going to be 100% at age 90, and there's always going to be exceptions. But generally speaking, that is not the case. And it's certainly not the case in the U.S. Senate. And that's not why these people are being reelected and reelected. It's because of the system and because of the entrenched incumbency. We know they're not operating 100%. Um, you know the issues, and we talked about on the podcast a couple months ago about Diane Feinstein in California. She's being very forgetful, asking the same question twice, etc., and we know that Senate Majority Leader Charles Schumer, now this is this is of course an ally, right? Had a serious talk with Feinstein, and as a result, she gave up her seat as the ranking Democrat on the Judiciary Committee in um, November. And uh, Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, he blurted out recently that um, if uh, Diane Feinstein can't make it through her term, then, then he's ready to replace her with a new senator until another election can be held. I mean, they recognize that. Dianne Feinstein, a friend and ally and someone who served him well over the years, is simply not doing so anymore. Yeah. Um, and that was, Feinstein was a focus of this article. Um, interestingly, the reporter, Roxanne Roberts, was not aware prior to her interview with me that both Barack Obama and Harry Truman had both made statements in, in favor of term limits. But it's funny, we kind of tiptoe around this issue of age and cognitive decline uh, and when you read the quote from Harry Truman about term limits, he didn't tiptoe at all. He did not pull any punches. First, he said seniority and senility are both terrible legislative diseases, and that's why we need term limits. But he also said, this is, this is an amazing quote, the appropriations committees of the House and Senate are aged and decrepit men, <laughs> and if they think at all, they think backwards. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, he, he was... Um, he was not holding back there, and I, I don't think we should either in addressing this issue. I hate to end this on a sad note, but you know, Senator Feinstein has filed papers with the Federal Election Commission for a 2024 re-election bid. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Enough said. 
George Will is a political commentator and author who writes a regular column for the Washington Post and provides commentary for NBC News and MSNBC. In 1986, the Wall Street Journal called him perhaps the most powerful journalist in America. He won the Pulitzer Prize for commentary in 1977. Will is also the author of one of the most thoughtful books ever written about the issue of term limits. It's titled Restoration, Congress, Term Limits, and the Recovery of Deliberative Democracy, published in 1992. In this talk, Recorded at Harvard's Kennedy School Institute of Politics shortly after the book was published, Will makes his case for term limits. Keep in mind, in November of that year, voters in 14 states imposed term limits on their congressional delegations at the ballot box. Heady times for the term limits movement. Thank thank you very much. Let me begin with a preemptive uh, apology. If I'm even less coherent than usual, it's because I've just come from Seattle where Tom Foley is suing the people of the state of Washington for having had the impertinence of voting for term limits. He's suing them in the name of democracy. Uh, it is good to be back here in, uh, in this forum. I did indeed uh, commit a lecture here that became a book sold by the dozens. Some of you may have it's, it's remaindered in better bookstores everywhere. Uh, and it is also true that I was at once a, a college professor, although I, I don't like to have that sort of flaunted. Um, I remember the night that Jim Buckley, my friend Jim Buckley, uh, won renomination in 1976 for the Conservative and Republican Party to be senator from New York, and my friend Pat Moynihan won the Democratic nomination, and over at Buckley's headquarters, Buckley said, I look forward to debating with Professor Moynihan, who I'm sure will run the kind of campaign we'd expect of a Harvard professor. And the, back over at Moynihan's headquarters, a journalist said, uh, Pat, uh, Jim Buckley's referring to you as Professor Moynihan. Pat drew up to his full height and said, Ah, the mudslinging has begun. <laughs> uh, every, um, every sermon needs a text, and on my text will come from the national religion of baseball. The, uh, the Orioles, on whose board of directors I sit, uh, used to have a manager named Earl Weaver, a feisty Napoleonic little man about 5'4", who was the scourge of American League umpires and would come barreling out of the dugout in high dudgeon and he'd stick his nose in the chest of a much larger umpire and shout at the top of his lungs, are you going to get any better or is this it? <laughs> the American people have asked that about their government and have decided that there is much room for improvement and that one of the ways to do that is term limits. I am convinced that this, the most vital and broad-based mass movement in the country since the Civil Rights Movement, and in some ways a continuation of the spirit, uh, is going to prevail. I believe that of all the voting done in 1992, the voting for president was the 15th most important voting. The 14 more important votes were in the 14 states where the political class, try as it might, was unable to prevent people from voting on term limits. In all 14 states, they passed. In 13 of 14 states, term limits got more votes than Bill Clinton got. In 14 states, term limits got more votes than Ross Perot got in 50 states. Uh, if American history tells us anything clearly, it is that when the American people, by a large majority, want something intensely and protractedly, they get it. And this looks to me like uh, a, a, a cause who's, that is going to succeed, as well it should as an amendment to the Madisonian system, because it is, as I indicate in the title of these remarks, a Madisonian change, in that it aims to modify, surgically, 
the structure of incentives governing behavior in public life, to change the incentives people have for entering public life and therefore the incentives they have for behaving in one way or another in public life. Now, I say at the outset that I am a conservative who came to my support of term limits reluctantly and indeed after having been rather ardently opposed to term limits. And there are four good reasons why conservatives particularly should be skeptical of term limits. The first is that conservatives believe that almost all improvements make matters worse. That's why we are conservatives. <laughs> the second is the doctrine of unintended consequences, which you're all familiar with, it being that the unintended consequences are often diametrically opposed to and much larger than the intended consequences of any social action. The third is that it's a curious reform because you know going in that one of the absolutely certain results of it will be deplorable, and that is the ending of some very great careers. My book on term limits is devoted to two of my best friends and two of the best senators, Jack Danforth and Pat Moynihan, both of which would be gone from Washington already uh, were term limits to prevail. If you enter my office in Washington, you'll see two photographs and one bust of Scoop Jackson, one of the few heroes I've had in Washington. It is the case that not all long careers are great, but most great careers are long, and this will limit long careers. And a fourth reason to be skeptical about term limits is that the Founding Fathers didn't vote them. And had I been among the Founding Fathers, I would not have. Because, founding, because term limits are indeed an excision from the sphere of free choice, and the good reason for doing that did not exist then. It does now. The difference is the emergence and nature of the modern state. When the Founding Fathers were writing and when walking along the river, a city where pigs grazed in Pennsylvania Avenue as recently as, uh, as late as the coming of Abraham Lincoln as president, the idea that anyone would want to make a long career in an unair-conditioned city was preposterous facially, and indeed few people did. Back in the Jeffersonian era, politics for those who wanted to make a career of it was very much a matter of musical chairs, and the idea, say, of going from uh, the Congress to the Virginia state legislature by no means appeared to Virginians, for example, as a step down. What began to change was, of course, what changed everything in American life, which was the Civil War, which gave A, consolidated for political reasons power in Washington, and gave an enormous impetus to the growth of industrial capitalism and the growth of the interventionist state. After the Civil War, of course, the, the great source of revenue for the federal government was the tariff. And the tariff was, in the language of today's politics, a twofer. To impose a tariff was to do a favor to one group, and then to spend the money raised by the tariff was to do a favor for another group. It was the beginning of a great mechanism by which the machinery of the federal government could be turned to the advantage of incumbency. The work of the interventionist state went up, the sessions got longer. Now, I believe that what has happened in this century is an imbalance in the natural constitution. We have seen the presidency grow. Uh, swell, really, to attain a role in American life at the expense of Congress that I would like to redress, and I think term limits will redress. One of the peculiarities of my particular approach to term limits is that I want it not to punish Congress, but I want it to restore Congress to its rightful place as the first branch of government. The modern presidency is not an institution that can safely be relied upon. The president, as a permanent presence in the American public mind, is a modern invention. It's 
some say began with a specific piece of legislation, something presidents never did before, when he did so for the Hepburn Act, regulating railroads, which he thought was a regime-level question. But it was Woodrow Wilson, who Professor Mansfield rightly identifies as the first president to be critical of the Founding Fathers, who really gave a theory to the Teddy Roosevelt's practice in inflating the presidency. Uh, he was, uh, gave the theory to the progressives and to the New Dealers, the theory that what the Founding Fathers intended was a mistake in many ways. It was Woodrow Wilson who said that a president exists to inspirit the country, to be a kind of constant moral tutor, and to interpret his word, to interpret what the people really want and would say they wanted if they were articulate enough and conscious enough of what they wanted. This led to a kind of increased plebiscitory nature of American politics surrounding the presidency. It has achieved a most grotesque form in recent years in the, the watery Caesarism of Ross Perot, but it is a constant tendency in American politics now that the president is a, a, a repository of the constant will of the American people, constantly shaping and being shaped by public opinion. The problem with this as a, a motor for the American government and as an anchor for our public life is that the presidency is an inherently weak office. By inherently, I mean constitutionally. There's precious little a president can do on his own other than move the country by the power of his rhetoric and by moving the country control Congress. The problem with that is that the presidency, therefore, is a hostage to the attributes of its current occupant. Think, by the way, I'll give you an example. Think that the, the prime ministership of Great Britain was pretty much the same in its power and function under Clement Attlee or Margaret Thatcher, two vastly different people. But the presidency was a different institution under Jimmy Carter in the summer of 1979 and Ronald Reagan in the summer of 1981, just two years difference. What we have seen, therefore, is, it seems to me, reasons to doubt whether we can healthily function as a country with Congress functioning the way it is, Congress viewed by an increasingly dyspeptic public as, a, as an illegitimate institution, uh, Congress needing restored. That was the, really the beginning of my uh, slow epiphany on this subject. I did, however, I mean, I can actually give you a little autobiography here. Uh, I was a in front of a group one day, I've forgotten where it was, and someone said, what do you think of term limits? And I gave the stock Washington answer. I said, if we had term limits, we, we wouldn't have seasoned professionals in Washington, and if we didn't have seasoned professionals, we wouldn't have the good government we've got. Uh, which got me to thinking that, of course, the opposite of the word professional is amateur, and amateur comes from the French word to love, and it means someone who does something for the love of it, which is an acceptable, if eccentric, motive even in Washington. That was the beginning. Just listening to my own language was the beginning of my change. I was also uh, watched and was uh, quite struck by the campaign in California for Proposition 140, their term limits measure for their state legislature and for their congressman. I was struck in the state legislative campaign for term limits that something I and others had predicted turned to be exactly wrong. It was said that the lawyers and lobbyists comprising the parasite class that surrounds any modern state seeking, seeking to use, uh, doing what the economists call transfer seeking, seeking to bend public power for private advantages, that they would relish term limits, we were told, because they would run roughshod over the rookies, the poor innocents who would come in. 
But when push came to shove, as it has a way of doing in California, the lawyers and lobbyists came out of the woodwork en masse, unanimously and in force, happily futilely, in support of the opponents of term limits, because they are quite comfortable with the long-established relationships they now have with the well-regulated, rented, and house-broken political class uh, with which they cooperate comfortably uh, in exchange for crucial political support. Then I noticed, uh, noticed, it's like noticing the Grand Canyon, uh, the, connection, the connection between the inability of the federal government to perform the first function of government, which is to write a reasonable budget, in short, the deficit, and careerism. The deficit is for Republicans and Democrats alike. There would be not a dime's worth of, well, maybe a dime, but not 20 cents worth of difference between them on this. The deficit is the principal instrument of incumbent advantage because it is the deficit that enables a political class in Washington to give the American people a dollar's worth of government and charge them 76 cents for it. It is the principal instrument by which politics is made easy by certain choices being evaded. And then there was something I'd already referred to, which is the nature of the modern presidency. I'm convinced that the presidency has achieved its peculiar role because of an accident. The two things arrived almost simultaneously in the late 40s, the Cold War and television. The Cold War made the president the center of a nonstop, 24-hour-a-day, year-round melodrama in a hair-trigger world, high-tension world, with Soviet missiles eight minutes away on submarines off North Carolina, with the military aide carrying the satchel with the launch codes behind the president wherever he went. Uh, the president became the focus of an abnormal and inherently unhealthy obsession on the part of the American people, deepened by television which exists to, which being slave to a superficial news gathering instrument, a camera must personalize politics, and the president suited that need terrifically. In one of the, the, the nice carom shots of American history, or of world history really, the crumbling of the Berlin Wall has begun to bring the presidency back down to human scale and to make the revival of Congress uh, much more possible than it recently has been. But in order for Congress to play the role it does, something must be done to stop what I consider uh, supply-side politics in Washington. By that, I refer to the process by which groups do not demand programs, thereby producing programs, but programs are developed to invent groups that will thereafter rally around them and become reliable constituencies for those who write the programs. Take two examples that are familiar and have recently as a result of some monomania on the part of me and some others, become sort of mildly famous, the honey subsidy and the wool subsidy. Most Americans, of course, have a clue that we have a wool subsidy and would wonder why we do. The reason we do is World War II was fought largely in wool uniforms. And shortly after the Second World War, the military, confronted with the possibility of another two-front war, said we'd better subsidize the growing of wool. Cold War is over. Alternative fabrics have come along, and the wool subsidy goes on and on. Somewhat limited as a result of recent hullabaloo's, but on and on. Same reason we have a honey subsidy. During the Second World War, honey was valued as a sugar substitute and as a way of, of uh, waterproofing munitions. War is over. 
But the hunting subsidy has two more years to run when they say, and I don't believe a word of it, they will phase it out. Not that the bees wouldn't make honey even if they weren't civil servants, but we're going <laughs> to test that. This is what I call supply-side politics. I actually, if I can just continue this digression one minute more. So the final last straw in my conversion on term limits came about 6.30 one morning in Denver. I don't know where I was there. I got up and I opened the Rocky Mountain News, saw a headline about basketball. I had written a column uh, about the Midnight Basketball League in Chicago, a wonderful program run entirely by the private sector, in which young at-risk inner-city men aged 17 to 24 are got off the street and out of trouble and into basketball uniforms, leagues, award banquets, referees, the whole scene. They play basketball in the middle of the night. Keeps them out of trouble. Good idea. I wrote a column about it. Big mistake. Because in Washington, the assumption is that every good idea should be a federal program. <laughs> and what the headline said in, um, in, in the Rocky Mountain News was, Congresswoman Patricia Schroeder gets federal grant for Midnight Basketball League. At that moment, I was reading, because I was going to review it for the New York Times book review, a biography of Henry Clay, and I was just serendipitously at the point where Henry, young Henry Clay spikes his way out of the Kentucky wilderness and over the corduroy roads and by barge up the rivers into Washington in 1806. And the day he arrives, Jefferson is having a spat with Congress, because Congress has passed a Rhodes Bill to build a bridge over the Potomac River. And Jefferson reluctantly, and against his better instincts, said, all right, I'm going to sign this. But I have looked in the Constitution under the enumerated powers, and nowhere does it say Congress should run around building bridges over the Potomac. He said, I'll sign it anyway, but if you're not careful, and if you don't mend your ways, in 150 years you're going to be subsidizing basketball in Denver. Uh, word, words, words to that effect. Uh, and I decided that, that term limits would be a, a rational response. Now, when I, in advocating term limits, uh, I don't want to say that term limits will make something straight from the crooked timber of humanity. It won't. But I do insist, as I say, it is a Madisonian measure. It is an accommodation to human nature and, most importantly, to the nature of the modern state. Do not favor term limits because you expect this or that particular policy outcome, because I don't know what the policy outcome would be. A lot of supporters of term limits say, if you have term limits, you will reduce federal spending. I don't know that that's true, and there's a good reason to doubt it. Because today, under Congress as currently constituted, the strongest political passion, arguably the only strong political passion in the country, is taxophobia. And that taxophobia is rooted in a pandemic distrust of the motives and discretion of the Congress. Term limits will, I think, rehabilitate Congress and will therefore be a precondition, a necessary precondition, for ending uh, the, the severe uh, reluctance to pay taxes. Do not support term limits in the anticipation of any particular predictable partisan outcome between Republicans and Democrats. The recent history of competition for open seats suggests that the Democrats will do slightly better than Republicans for open seats, for a lot of reasons, but basically because Democrats like being in government and Republicans would rather work for IBM, which is why they're Republicans. 
the one clear, reasonably clear effect term limits would have would be to increase the number of women and minorities in politics for, I think, obvious reasons. As I've said, do not be for term limits because you want to punish Congress or shove it more to the periphery of American life. It will have, I think, the opposite effect by bringing into politics and into Congress people who come often from established careers to which they can return and who therefore do not face the prospect of risk and elective defeat as personal and emotional and vocational annihilation, whose identity is not tied up as most poignantly and pathetically you see, for example, in Bob Packwood with clinging to public office. You would, I think, have a less risk-averse and therefore more assertive, more uh, decisive, bolder Congress, not least a Congress bold in standing up to the entrenched and permanent government in the bureaucracy. But most of all, most of all, and here I, I am uh, diametrically opposed to most of my friends in the term limits movement, do not be for term limits in order to make Congress, as they say, more responsive. The problem today in American life is that Congress is far too responsive. It is an institution incapable of saying no. It is a finely tuned seismograph quivering to every tremor of organized appetite in the country. And the point of term limits, as I envision it, is to establish what Professor Mansfield calls constitutional distance between the elected and the, uh, uh, the electors, to make room to give motives and to give emotional and psychic space for the elected to deliberate. Now, in this sense, term limits is just a modern version of a very old American concern with understanding the sociology of virtue. It's as old as Jefferson worrying about cities. It's as old as Hamilton worrying about a, a landed squirearchy in the South. This is an attempt to give Republican representative institutions a certain character, a certain caste, certain attributes. This is why, by the way, uh, I think the litigation that began in Seattle the other day is going to establish that, in fact, states do have the constitutional power by state action to limit the terms of congressmen and senators because the courts have traditionally for 200 years been very deferential to many state efforts to restrict access to the ballot and restrict and regulate candidacies in the interests of such sometimes competing values as political openness and political stability. Tom Foley says, Anything other than the three qualifications listed in the Constitution is unconstitutional. That is, have to be a certain age, have to be an American citizen, have to live in the state. The state, by the way, that's all it says. All kinds of states have laws as well as customs that say you have to live in the congressional district. And the Constitution doesn't have a word in it about congressional districts. When Tom Foley runs for office every two years, he goes in and signs an oath that he is a registered voter. The state of Washington has a law saying you must be a registered voter to be a congressman. That's nowhere in the Constitution. All kinds of states have laws that say if you're going to run for Congress, you can't hold certain other offices. It's not in the Constitution. There are all kinds of restrictions on voter choices and politicians' options that already exist. Term limits would be simply another one of those. Congress is, is reforming Congress is so particularly interesting to those with a, a, a bent toward political philosophy 
because Congress, being the locus of popular sovereignty in the United States, is the locus of the modern political problem. The old political problem was thought to be the tension between the ruler and the ruled. And for a while, people thought popular sovereignty solved all those problems. But the sovereign people themselves can, it turns out, be a problem, particularly when, as de Tocqueville warned, uh, you have a compassionate and solicitous government that degrades men without tormenting them, in de Tocqueville's language. It degrades them by kindness, by courting them, by supply-side politics, in part. The attempt is to produce in Washington a political class and an institution capable of deliberation as opposed to the mere registering of interests. I'm fascinated, and it seems to me if you just listen to common language of our lives, we learn so much. The word clout is one of the most common and defensive words used in American political discourse because it assumes, it postulates, it teaches that politics is a collision of forces. No persuasion, one clout is bigger than another clout, is how you settle arguments. And indeed, that is how it works too much. But in fact, by changing the way we select the people who staff our institutions, we can acknowledge the fact that political virtues are not natural, they are nurtured, they are the product of artifice. And term limits is a Madisonian artifice. By working on the institution, you will affect the workings of the institution. To make it possible, in Madison's language in Federalist 10, for the institutions better to refine and enlarge public opinion. That's what the founders thought representatives were to do, to add reason to mere willfulness. That is what you are more apt to get, I believe. So there is built into America a literally congenital, from birth, distrust. Term limits will raise the trustworthiness of government. I side, however, with Alexander Hamilton in Federalist 68 when he said, the true test of good government is its aptitude and tendency. Listen to the temperate language they use. The aptitude and tendency, not the certainty, the aptitude and tendency to behave reasonably. Ah, but some people say, aren't term limits anti-democratic. Well, they are if the First Amendment is anti-democratic, if the first eight amendments, which are shall not amendments. Is it anti-democratic to refuse to the people the right through their elected representatives to establish religion or bridge freedom of speech? I don't think so. It is part of the way we structure free government and popular sovereignty. It is passing strange, I may say, in passing, for opponents of term limits to say that they're opposed to term limits because they so passionately believe in the unfettered right of people to vote, when these very people will not allow term limits to come to a vote in Congress, will not allow it to come to the floor of the House of Representatives. Every year, term limit to the House Judiciary Committee, which is chaired by Jack Brooks, who has been in Congress since God was a child and is himself <laughs> is himself an eloquent argument for term limits, and there it dies. <laughs> in the Senate, where, uh, where it is less easy to bottle things up, uh, term limits first came to a vote in 1948. It got one vote, that of the man who introduced it. About three years ago, term limits got 30 votes. Last time around, it got 39 votes. 
as I say, I think the tide is, is, uh, is running strongly. There are others who say, well, you don't need term limits. The key is campaign finance reform. There are two problems with that. The terrible campaign finance rules that we have now, at least the people who say campaign finance reform is the key say they're terrible. The campaign rules we have now were written by incumbents. The next set of rules will, by definition, be written by incumbents, and they will not be written to handicap incumbents. Furthermore, all campaign finance rules, in my judgment, that restrict either political spending or giving are, by the logic of the Supreme Court, unconstitutional because they ration the permissible amount of political speech. That's my view. The Supreme Court lags behind me in this on so many other matters, but uh, I think we'll come around one of these days. Uh, it was finally said that, that uh, and I'm really just touching on these things so we can argue about them in a moment, it is said that government is so complicated nowadays that uh, we need the expertise of people who've been there a very long time in order to run it. Two responses to that. One is maybe if that is what we need for that kind of government, we shouldn't have that kind of government, but I will pass that over. I will simply say that being a senator is far less demanding and far less complicated. Running a congressional committee, being a representative of any congressional district, far less demanding than being, say, Secretary of Health and Human Services or of the Interior or the Treasury or Attorney General or anything else. And those executive branch departments, huge, sprawling, and consequential, are generally staffed by people who come to Washington from the private sector, stay four years or so, and leave. So the idea of expertise seems to fail. Today, already, we have 15 states have enacted term limits. Those 15 states have 40% of the American population. This year alone, Los Angeles in June, New York in November, the two largest cities in the United States voted term limits. And that, in very short compass, is the case for term limits. Thank you very much. <laughs> Any other news from around the country we should know about this week, Nick? Uh, yes, uh, we do have a bit of bad news out right. of uh, Louisiana right. State Legislature, where if you recall, the term limits convention had passed the state house by an overwhelming margin, um, but the Senate did not feel as strongly about listening to uh, the American people, listening to their constituents. And so they unveiled a, a very unusual uh, parliamentary maneuver, parliamentary trick to kill the resolution called a motion to lay it on the table. And unfortunately, that passed with 21 votes. And in the Louisiana Senate, the resolution is dead for 2021. Well, we have our fingers crossed, but maybe that one's now not the most likely prospect for our next victory. This was a big year. You know, we won West Virginia completely. And we also won half of Louisiana. Now we lost the other half. But we won half of North Carolina, half of Tennessee, half of uh, Georgia, and we're alive in, in Pennsylvania. So revising the question I asked in, in the previous podcast, what state do you think is going to be next to pass the Terminalist Convention bill? I would put my bets on North Carolina or Pennsylvania. Okay. Um, I think both are very viable. Uh, Pennsylvania is a year-long session. And so there's, you know, no no rush 
to get it done right now. Okay. Like if, if the legislature is not willing to bring it up right now, they can always uh, bring it up later when their docket is a little bit more clear. Mm-hmm. Uh, North Carolina is the other one. They are in session until mid-August, and so they have some time to operate. The key there will be seeing whether Senate President Berger and Committee Chairman Raybon are willing to give the resolution a hearing okay. or not. Because we believe if it can get to the floor and the members have an opportunity to vote on it, it will pass. Um, but right now, there are a few gatekeepers uh, who have to make that decision. Okay. And I note also that in the case of Georgia and North Carolina and Tennessee, um, those half victories, if we don't if we can't nail it down this session, we'll carry over to next year so we don't have to rewin those chambers. So we got a lot still alive Correct. here, even though we lost in Louisiana. And um, to be clear, if I didn't make it clear, um, we're talking about the tournaments convention, the application by the states calling for an amendment writing convention limited to the subject of congressional term limits. And by the way, mm-hmm. stay tuned because in the next uh, few weeks and months, we're going to have some big announcements to make in all of these states okay. uh, that are still alive. So stay tuned. Stay tuned. Thanks for joining us for another episode of No Uncertain Terms. The Turn Limits Convention bills are moving through the state legislatures. This could be a breakthrough year for the Turn Limits movement. To check on the status of the Turn Limits Convention resolution in your state, go to turnlimits.com slash takeaction. There, you will see if it has been introduced and where it stands in the committee process on its way to the floor vote. If there's action to take, you'll see a Take Action button by your state. Click it. This will give you the opportunity to send a message to the most relevant legislators, urging them to support the legislation. They have to know you're watching. That's turnlimits.com slash take action. If your state has already passed the Turn Limits Convention resolution, or the bill's not been introduced in your state, you can still help. Please consider making a contribution to U.S. term limits. It is our aim to hit the reset button on the U.S. Congress, and you can help. Go to termlimits.com slash donate termlimits.com slash donate. Thanks. We'll be back next week. Find us on most social media at US Term Limits. Like us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, LinkedIn, Instagram, and now TikTok. STL. Yeah.